1: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at PublishersWeekly.com slash PWRadio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes and AudiobookRadio.net. I'm Rose Fox, and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly.
0: And I'm Mark Rotel, a Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
1: On today's show, incredibly prolific author Linda Lael Miller discusses her new novel, Once a Rancher, and also some exciting stuff she's got in the works. Then PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed explores selling eBooks in an evolving digital marketplace.
0: But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan.
1: So there's a lot of stuff going on in fiction. I'm happy to start with that. Sure. Uh, we have a new number one on the hardcover fiction list, Fool Me Once by Harlan Coben, author of The Stranger, Edgar Award winner. We gave this book a starred review, uh, so it's, it's just stellar. Um, the heroine is Captain Maya Stern Burkett, who uh, had a career as a U.S. Army helicopter pilot um, that came to an end after a whistleblower mm. exposed that some of her actions in Iraq caused civilian deaths. So a lot of drama. Right from the start there And uh, we say that Cobin is like A skilled magician Saving the best Most stunning trick For the very end So this is a pretty intense bit of suspense there for you. Um, Great way to kick off the list. Uh, It's all the way up there at number one with about 30,000 books sold in its first week out. At uh, number four, we have The Nest by Cynthia Dapris Sweeney. Um, This is uh, more of a a soap opera type of story um, about four middle-aged siblings who are waiting for a trust fund their father had established to be distributed. And unfortunately the fund is no longer there. Mm. So there's a a lot of domestic drama. And uh, we say that Sweeney spins a fast-moving, often humorous narrative, and her portrait of each sibling is compassionate even as she reveals their foibles with emotional clarity. Her writing is assured, energetic, and adroitly plotted. So it looks like another enjoyable weekend read. That's the sort of book you, you curl up with. Just below that at number five, The Summer Before the War by Helen Simonson, uh, the dense follow-up to the best-selling Major Pettigrew's Last Stand. This one focuses on gender, class, and social mores in the town of Rye in England uh, at the dawn of World War I. And uh, we say her writing is restrained but effective, especially when making quiet revelations, and there's a heartbreaking but satisfying ending that's very fitting for the story. Oh great It's also got a really beautiful cover I don't often note these um, But uh, just a picture of a woman on a bicycle That perfectly evokes that early uh, 20th century era Um, Just great design there Uh, A little further down Down at number 14 uh, Is Predator by Wilbur Smith and Tom Kane Uh, This is the third book in Smith's Crossbow series uh, With Kane as the co-author And this one there's a Running protagonist, Hector Cross And uh, he's Facing a, a new threat from his arch enemy who escapes from a Texas prison just hours before he's supposed to be executed. So stakes are high, the blood pressure's higher, and we said amid all the mayhem, Hector has time to acquire a beautiful new girlfriend too. So Smith's many friends will be delighted with this new serving of the author's usual heady mix of sex, violence, purple prose, and soap opera. Uh, that's uh well that's just a bit of fun, yeah. honestly. Uh, I wanted to make a note down at number twenty three is Batman. Volume 8, we don't usually see Comics collections that high On the list, but of right. course the Batman vs. Superman movie is bringing All things Batman very right. much to To the fore right now For those interested in that I point you to our interview with Glenn Weldon Last week, we had a lot of fun with that That was great And finally, uh, just below that at number 26 I wanted to make note of A Doubter's Almanac uh, By Ethan Cannon We gave this a starred review And it's one of our picks And uh, we say the mysteries of higher mathematics And the even deeper mysteries of the human heart Are the unlikely themes of this novel Which is written Mm. with stunning assurance And elegant resonant prose uh, about a man who's both blessed and afflicted with mathematical genius. Mm. Uh, we say Kanan's accomplishments are many, not least of which is his ability to lucidly explain the field of algebraic topology, not something that every reader of novels right. knows about. Uh, and his superb storytelling makes this novel a tremendous literary achievement.
0: Oh, fantastic. So yeah. I'm going
1: to I'm going to close with that. Technically, that's that's uh, just below the fold, just just below the the twenty five list that we put in the right. magazine. But I just wanted to call that out because uh, we love the book and um, definitely worthy of your attention.
0: Yeah, well, speaking of below and above the fold, we have really three mm-hmm. books above the fold, uh, new debuts, and the rest below. But we have kind of kind of interesting book, the Bob's Burgers Burger Book, real recipes for Joe burgers by lauren bouchard and this is uh gives hungry fans their best chance to eat one of bob belcher's beloved specialty burgers of the day 75 original practical recipes it's humorous great voice according to its board we don't have a review of this and it's at number five when it says
1: joke burgers are they edible
0: this, I have not <laughs> seen the book, so I am not too sure, but... I mean, I'm it sure sounds like yeah. a
1: great buy for April Fool's right, Day. Right. Exactly,
0: exactly. correct. Yeah. Then we have Brooke Griffin's Skinny Suppers. So, going from burgers to skinny suppers, 125 lightened-up, healthier meals for your family. We don't have a review of this. Some guilt-free, flavor-filled recipes from the woman who runs a popular Skinny Mom website. So, we actually have a couple of books that have been inspired either by websites or... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, YouTube videos on this list, both uh, debuts and not. But at number 25, this is right at the fold, uh, Bill Walton, uh, Back from the Dead, published by Simon Schuster. What we say, my history tells me that there's cash coming soon, says basketball legend Walton, as he writes in this optimistic, bouncy autobiography. We say that uh, he doesn't follow through on some fascinating anecdotes, such as that time as a highly played pro, he tried working as a lumberjack. But his love for life and the people and things in it, including his college coach John Wooden, is infectious uh, so this is just a um, a pretty quick read from a uh, California basketball player. The last two I have here all like say two possibly. Three, we have another cookbook, the Nerdy Nummies Cookbook: Sweet Treats for the Geek in Us All by Rosanna Pansino. This is another person who is a, a internet phenom, popular baking show called Nerdy Nummies. Uh, and this is a collection of her geeky recipes such as apple pie, pie, I, pie right. <laughs> uh, chocolate chip, smart cookie, and volcano cake. So uh, there's also a fossil cake and there's just a lot of geeky stuff in there.
1: Well, that sounds like fun. Yeah. And that's at number 32.
0: And that's at number 32. Then at 42 and 46 personalities that uh, uh, got started on YouTube, we have Miranda Sings, a title of the book called Self Help. And then we have Tyler Oakley's Binge, who is prominent in the LGBTQ community. And these are both essays that they're touting as hilarious. Again, we don't have reviews of these either. So that's what we have on the nonfiction list.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Next up, Linda Lale Miller tells us about the romantic allure of the West and people with integrity. We'll be right back.
2: I'm Lee Eisenberg, author of The Point Is, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
0: Today, we've got Linda Lael Miller on the line. Her new book is Once a Rancher. Hello, Linda. So glad you could join us.
3: Hi, Mark. I'm glad to be here, so to speak. I'm actually in a hotel room in Tampa. <laughs> in
0: Tampa, my hometown. <laughs> yeah. Oh,
3: really? really? Yeah. Well, we haven't got to see much of it yet, but um, so far we're impressed. Uh, are you on tour promoting the book? Actually, I'm here for a charitable event. At the uh, the Bartolo Island Foundation puts on a charity event, and I'm one of the people attending. Well, that sounds like an excellent opportunity. I'm it's very she-she. I don't know, you know, for a cowgirl, but I'll manage. So um, tell us a little bit,
1: as a cowgirl, about uh, present-day Mustang Creek, Wyoming, which is uh, where you set your book, and, and what the appeal is of Wyoming as a setting for your novels.
3: Well, I was—I kind of had my eye on Wyoming anyway, and I, so I took a little uh, trip down to Jackson Hole. And... Uh, I was just there for a few days but it was so incredibly beautiful. And I already had the idea in my mind that that I wanted to use that area but of course you need to go and look at it. There's a, a place has a spirit. You can you know, you can do a lot of good research online but you really kind of have to put your feet down in that place. So I went there and I was so impressed with it and of course I had the characters and the basic story in mind and and things just started taking shape and I looked at the Grand Tetons, and we went up the Yellowstone and and saw the soul faithful. That was quite a thing. And the area just sort of gets inside you, which is a cellular thing for me, and uh, you become part of it. And and, uh, that enriches the story, I think.
0: So tell us a little bit about the story of Once a Rancher.
3: Well, this is the, the first of a trilogy and, uh, in Once a Rancher is about, uh, Slater Carson and he is the eldest brother, uh, which is a theme with me in a, in, of three brothers that run this ranch. But because I've written a great many, uh, ranch books, I wanted to add a, a, a few new elements to that. So this ranch has a vineyard, which is featured in the second, uh, or the third book, I'm sorry. So we have, your regular Wyoming cattle ranch, but it has a vineyard and a growing business, a winery. And this is run by the youngest brother, who's the third, the hero of the third book. So right now we're talking about the first book, and that is Slater, the eldest brother, and he is a documentary filmmaker. Um, And the reason for that, again, I wanted to add something uh, to give new flavor and new interest. Um, also, I love documentaries myself and he, he does all studies of the old West, you know, and, and the new West and that everything in between. And it's kind of a Ken Burns kind of thing, but focused on the, on the West. And so that made him very interesting, uh, to me in, in addition to being an accomplished cowboy. As a vocation, it, it's, you know, it's pretty same old, so you've got to add some interest points.
1: (laughs) So tell us a little bit more about these three brothers and what appeals to you about writing um, these kinds of linked stories where a series of siblings get their romantic happy endings.
3: You know, I think my fascination began way back with with, uh, television. My favorite was Bonanza, and it featured three three brothers. And for some reason, this... um, the dynamics of being brothers and and fighting and sometimes being um, alienated from each other and seriously even feuding and yet when there's a when there's a problem from the outside they will stand back to back and that that kind of concept fascinates me uh, I think it's just the variation of of people and and, you know, how how different how many different levels we all live from and how many different people we really are, depending on circumstance and and other interactions. And, and did these- that sound crazy and confusing or did it?
1: No. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense because uh, you're absolutely right. We are different people in different situations and um I'm sure that this uh, oldest brother Slater Carson is one guy on the family ranch and quite another guy when he's hanging out with other filmmakers.
3: Yes, he yes, he is and and I I know that all of us are are actually very diverse. It's it's a matter of noticing, you know, and in today's society that's hard. We're all in such a rush, but then, uh, his, his love interest, um, and, uh, she's much more than that because my heroines are always strong women in their own right and they marry this man because they want to, not because they, they need to be completed, you know, so they always have their own goals and their own objectives. And, uh, the heroine is Grace Emery and she has recently, uh, been hired to run a local resort and that's another big business in that area is, is resorts because of all the skiing and everything. And uh she but she's also an ex-cop and she's uh, she's divorced uh her her ex is one of those um adventurer types, you know, kind of an Indiana Jones type, but he's not really good at raising his 14-year-old son. So she has his 14-year-old son who of course, is uh, in addition to just plain being 14, which is hard enough. <laughs> you know, he has some other problems, and and this is the initial meaning as he he the boy steals a sign off one of the um, location vans or something, and you know this is how they get introduced.
0: So I'm, I'm curious about, uh, you, you just, uh, touched on it there. So she, she had, uh, relocated here for a hotel from, I believe, Seattle. Um, and right. she's got her stepson whose name is Ryder. T- tell us mm-hmm. a little bit more about their relationship. I mean, um, uh, I, am intrigued yeah, with, with right, Ryder. Maybe? Yeah.
3: Yeah. I think it's really, uh, if, if you reduce this to, uh, psychological benefits of profiles, this to me shows uh, what a committed person uh, Grace really is, and and how responsible. And without being, I don't think, over responsible, but you know, she could have argued, this child is not my problem. You know, uh, he has a mother who's largely disinterested, and then this absentee father, and and the kid is difficult as you would be in those uh, situations. But I, I think it says a lot about Grace's character. That she looks at him and sees um the man he's trying to become, you know, and that she's willing to kind of step out and endure some problems um in order to help him along to help him through and i that that is the kind of people I like to write about that are committed, they're gonna step up and and they're always gonna do what what they know is right, which can, arguably, it can make them very predictable. <laughs> that, you know, villains are easy to write about because they're not going to necessarily do the honorable thing. But heroes and heroines will invariably do, uh, they're all about integrity for me. And if they don't have that, they're not, um, they're not heroes or heroines in my books. But Grace is, uh, Grace is, uh, she cares about this child, you know, and isn't going to let him just, go down the tube if she can help it. And uh, a lot of people would say, hey, I've got a great job. I'm at this cowboy who needs the kid, you know, but but Grace is not like that. And I admire her. She's going to go to the wall uh, to help this kid.
1: That's wonderful. It's wonderful characterization. She sounds like someone you want to spend a whole book reading about, you know, someone whose yeah. company you're happy to be in.
3: Right, I hope so. You know, if there's one thing I, I myself as a reader, I can't stand, uh, an, an obnoxious major character. Now, an obnoxious secondary character or a villain, that's fine, but, um, I, I need to like and respect these people, and, and evidently my readers, uh, feel the same way, because they seem to, the, the, um, the reviews on this book, um, particularly from from PW, have been wonderful. I I believe this got a star review, mm-hmm. and that's that's a big thing. Well, my reviewer absolutely
1: <laughs> fell in love with the book, uh, and uh, you know, it it really seemed like the kind of book that you you just you savor. Where these are these are, as you say, decent people with integrity, and you want to spend some time with them. So tell us a little bit about the obstacles they're facing. Um, Obviously, we've talked a little bit about Ryder and the the struggles that he's having. What about Grace and Slater? What gets in the way of them just sort of immediately connecting and finding their happy
3: life together? Well, I think basically uh, neither one of them are actually looking for love. They're they're uh, find the way they are. And so, you know, it's sort of a matter of, uh, of course, there are barriers like someone is uh, stealing from the resort and, you know, this person turns out to be dangerous, that kind of thing. But basically, it's that both of them like their lives and they're hesitant to go and, like, um, you know, throw somebody else into the mix and, and have it all turned upside down and who knows how it'll come out. So people, you know, sometimes will marry because um, their life is bad and they think that that will change it, which is a sad, sad mistake. But but what do you do when your life is very good and very solid the way you like it and you're just a little lonely once in a while? But heck, everybody has something like that going on, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, in terms of conflict, that and... and um, Although he's sophisticated and having traveled a lot, he's still basically a country boy and she's a city girl. And there, there are profound differences in the, um, just in the cultures, you know, there are levels of culture just not so drastic as the difference between here and, and Mumbai, you know, <laughs> but, um, there are cultural differences, but in this is the very, very tricky thing about romance is you have, uh, two wonderful people that anybody in their right mind would want to be married to or or connected with, and you still have to come up with a reason why it won't work and uh, this is why i one reason I have consummate respect for romance authors because it is it, it is not easy to do that, especially when the readers tend to be very smart, very educated, and also well schooled in the genre they've read multiple romances so so you're trying to convince these very astute people that this might be the one romance where they don't get together, you know, and that's hard.
0: You know, I, I, as I'm as we're talking, I'm I'm realizing how nuanced your your themes are. That and maybe it's because I haven't read uh, uh, many romance novels, but. Maybe uh, stereotypically, you you wouldn't have this kind of nuance or complexity of relationships in in a traditional romance. Do you find that true?
3: I think maybe in the old fashioned the way it used to be done, but current uh, romance writers are very very good writers, and and it has always been a training ground for people who who come out and become great, like Nora Roberts, like Sandra Brown, you know, I could, tons of us, Debbie Maycumber. Have come out of that uh so it's a training ground, so I never like to I never like to imply that its you know if you had to adhere strictly to the formula, then it would be time to tear out your hair <laughs> but uh, I think a lot of people use nuances i'm i I don't think I have a corner on that, but it's a lot about psychology and the makeup of the person and and what might be a conflict with one person would not cause another to hesitate. You know, so you have to lay your groundwork. And for me, it's all, all, all about the characters. If I know my characters, then they'll tell me their story because I know what they're going to do.
1: So you touch a little bit uh, on very currently topical themes, such as blended families, non-traditional parenting. Um, What led you to integrate that with your books?
3: Well, I think that it's, uh, I myself was, a um, well, still am a single parent since 1987. I have a lot of, um, empathy for that. It's, uh, early on when, uh, long before I was successful, I used to look behind the couch cushions to get lunch money. I mean, I've been there, you know, so I have a, a great emph- empathy for that. And I, and I like to show strong women, uh, equally strong men, but of course more women read these books than men. And early on, I learned that there are a lot of young women who are looking to these books to learn what it means to be a woman, and what it mean more importantly, what it means to be a healthy woman with a healthy approach. You know, so you're never going to hear one of my heroines say, "I have to have this man or I'm going to die," you know, or "I don't care," whatever. No, no hitting. You know, none of that stuff is cool. And and. I like the idea of conveying that to, if one reader, if one teenage girl reads that and identifies, then it's worth it. What a wonderful but sentiment. I, I like to focus on strengths. Let's, let's go with what our strengths are and, and of course, uh, characters, um, I'm writing now, uh, starting a big, uh, it'll be a hardcover in the whole works, but it's a civil war story. It starts right. at, at around Gettysburg. And the whole concept of it is these ordinary people confronted with these incomprehensible, uh, situations and, and how they deal. And I just marvel at the holy, at, at the human spirit, how they go forward, you know, in the face of things that you wouldn't, you wouldn't think you could do, but you will if you need to. If they're in front of you, you will do it, you know. And I think that is just fascinating and incredible. And it really applies to all humans in all times. But it really brought it home to me writing about the Civil War because, you know, when you have people fighting to the death in your cornfield and you have people in your yard that are mortally wounded, uh, I mean, wow. And you still have to, and maybe you didn't have enough food in the first place, but you still have to cope. Well, that's that's the kind of people I like to write about is people who can, uh, in any kind of adversity, and, of course, there's no comparison between adversity and Once a Rancher and in, in, and in a Civil War novel. But the principle is really the same, that stepping up, that being present, being willing to engage with whatever you're confronted with.
1: We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away.
0: Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella.
1: Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio.
0: Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com.
1: Welcome back. We're talking with Linda Lale Miller, who's the author of Once a Rancher and is also telling us about this fascinating sounding civil war book. Tell us a little bit
3: more about that if you can. Is is that slated for publication sometime soon? Uh well, it's it's in the marketing stage right now and I'm going to New York for some meetings. The the idea is uh very well received. It's an American saga. Um uh, these are longer stories, more complex with secondary characters and animals and i always have animals but they basically they cover the first war one is that i'm writing now is set in near gettysburg in a fictional town near gettysburg um but it mainly focuses on that and and then the second book is is uh, reconstruction uh the third book is um the first world war mm. and yeah or no the third book is the west the settling of the west and this is all Three families, uh, two white and one black and how they, they become sort of a dynasty, uh, and they settle the West and it's a, it's a long saga involving the, the, their descendants and it goes all the way up through World War Two. So, and t- tentatively it's the Homefront series because it's about, uh, again, I like to write about people who are there are a lot of books about the generals and they're out there writing in this battle and that battle and, you know, but I like to write about the civilians and, and the women. The women basically did as much as Lincoln to hold the union together because they're the ones who went out and cleaned up the mess. They're the ones who went out and took care of these fallen soldiers, fed them, gave them water, uh, saved as many as they could. Uh, and they, it's, it's, again, it's the, the human spirit is, is an amazing, amazing marvel to me. And I love to explore it and, and to do that, I put my characters in different situations, um, varying from, from whether to, to marry or, or enjoy your life as it is or, you know, <laughs> or to, you know, how are you going to take care of both the an- friends and enemies because you, you would have, uh, After a battle, you would have Confederate wounded as well as Union. And depending on which side are you, you know, are you going to take care of everybody equally or or what? And, you know, don't get me started. I can go on for hours about it.
1: Well, this sounds like such a huge project. How how did you decide to do that? I think people really identify you with Western romance. This is a big departure.
3: Well, I have been actually exploring this and researching it for 20 years. I've been to Gettysburg. Many, many times and I had a consuming interest in, in the Civil War and basically for the same reason that the three brother thing where they're either very close or, or they're fighting, it's the same concept because, you know, just on a much larger scale. How could, the thing that still staggers me is how could this happen? How could two people, you know, how could a family be seated at a supper table and one goes north and one goes south? You know, and, and no, know, knowing that you might face each other in battle. Incredible. Mm. <laughs> so, but I have, I've had a, um, this is kind of my, uh, dream and I, I will continue, no, no question. I will be continuing to write romances. They will just be, uh, they'll be, uh, a little longer and probably more complex, you know, with more characters. Cause I've found I really like to have a lot of characters and subplots and, that kind of thing. But I will continue to write romance. I love romance. That it, it isn't an issue of trying to get away from it. Oh, it no, is, I um, didn't think so. Not after, of, um, what, a 100 books or something? It out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just want to make that clear. I don't think that, you know, just so that people don't think I'm not going to do it anymore. I love that. But I have, I, I believe I can write one uh, quite complex. Uh, romance and now to explain what I mean by that with this book we have the three brothers and the whole their, each of their stories. What what the new books will be is that they would all be in the same book and the, the plots would be interwoven, mm-hmm. you know, their their lives. So it's really kind of a the same thing but I think bigger and I, I think better.
0: So you've written more than a hundred romance novels. uh, Contemporary history. I think it's
3: around somewhere around 150. Actually, years ago, I yeah, years ago, I received an award from RWA, or I wouldn't have known. But it was a centennial book, the centennial award, which meant I'd written 100 books and published them. And I was was like, wow, I've written, you know, because I had long since stopped trying to count them. I, but I know it's closer to 150 now.
0: Wow, what what is your your writing routine like? Uh, and it sounds like you you do a lot of research as well, w- either traveling to uh, to Wyoming for once a, a rancher or or doing uh, research for Civil War. What's what's your routine like, both writing and say researching?
3: Well, uh, writing um, I write probably actually at the computer. This is a tricky question. I probably write from four to eight hours at the, com- actually at the computer. Mm-hmm. But I believe I write 24-7 because it's so subjective. And because, you know, you can wake up out of a sound sleep with a line of dialogue or a plot twist. So I don't think it ever really stops. Um, and as for the research, then uh, obviously now with laptops and stuff, we can write in more, uh, places than we could before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I take it, I take it with me. Um, and then for, I've been to Gettysburg numerous times and it was because of this book. And it's more about, I can get the facts about Gettysburg from a book or a website, but there's again that sense that you only get if you're there. If, you know, it's something, ah, uh, it's almost quantum, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. like reading the energy or something. Without going woo woo, it's not like that, but it, it, you sort of become a part of it. It's like, it sort of infuses you or something. And so I do that whenever I can. Um, but I'm primarily, uh, and with the Civil War, you really have to be careful because people are such buffs and they know all, they know an amazing amount about it and they're going to be jolted out of the story if you don't have it right. So you really have to do a lot of fact checking with that. But with um, with the Westerns, I, I grew up in basically in the West. My dad was a marshal. He was a rodeo cowboy. My uncle was quite successful in the bareback riding uh, event and uh, so successful that he got to kiss Miss America on two different occasions, which is a big deal if you're from Northport, Washington. Um, so, and then, of course, there were all the stories that I heard from my uh, adopted grandmother. That was Florence Wiley. She had grown up um, out on a farm outside of Coffeyville, Kansas, and Jesse James slept in the family barn one night. They she remembered the day the ba- the Dalton brothers tried to rob the bank in town and <laughs> how they were gunned down. Uh, and so I was raised on this stuff, mm-hmm. you know that and countless other stories. Um, so they sort of do this osmosis thing, <laughs> I think. Right. But that's you know. I, so I love the West, and, and uh, I will never, uh, I will never not write about the the West. It's home. And
1: um, tell us a little bit before we close about your foundation, the Linda Lale Miller Scholarships for Women, because uh, Mark Mark turned this up while he was uh, thinking of things to ask you about, and I'm totally fascinated by it
3: well actually that's um that's tough to answer because we did finally suspend that we had uh, done that for fifteen years, and what we ran into was uh and you may or may not want to use this i don't know but the what we ran into was that the expense of creating a foundation the expense of uh maintaining the the scholarships far exceeded the what we could give the people so we had helped something like well we it was actually me but 50 women to go to college um not the not a full ride obviously but um a scholarship and so we ha- it is it's, in cur- it's currently in suspended animation because of the uh, uh problems i mean when you when you're giving away 10,000 in education and it's costing you 30,000 to do it Hmm. There has to be some reconsideration, so that is still in the in the hopper, but it's been suspended at this point um just it's temporary, but uh we did it for fifteen years
0: well i I find this uh interesting as well i mean whether the the foundation is is suspended or not that you had started it uh that it had gone on for so long, and also if i'm correct uh, according to your bio you yourself did not go to college
3: no I didn't I I've um, I've read a lot and I'm probably uh, self-educated uh, and read, read tons but no uh, except for a few um, really like you know adult extension classes I didn't go um, I was married when I was 19 and and uh, I was writing but I'd already been writing for nine years <laughs> at that point. you know mm. I started when I was ten, and I was very serious about it but um the 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 link with my scholarships is that these were usually displaced homemakers uh they were they had to be above I think the age was twenty five We made a few um uh exceptions, but usually girls that are graduating from high school they have more access to to help you know with various grants and and scholarships but we found that women uh maybe they'd been divorced or or you know whatever um they we had a gal that was had served in Iraq and came back and and you know the old story the husband had cleaned out the bank accounts and mm-hmm. left and all kinds of things like that but it was more like a bootstrap thing um, and we, it was non-traditional because we, uh, paid for gas, wh- whatever. We would review the case. Um, and they had to write an essay, uh, uh what, the, what their goal was and what their circumstances were. And that alone was enough to break your heart. I mean, I, I wanted to give them all a scholarship, which of course was impossible. Uh, it, on many, ca- we probably gave like six laptops because in many cases, they had everything arranged, um, but they, but they couldn't do it without the laptop. We even had one whose son was being treated for cancer and she would attend the, um, University of Phoenix classes while she was, while she was waiting for him at treatment while she was sitting with him. That just, you know, tore my heart out. And, uh, she didn't actually win the, the, one of the scholarships, but we sent a laptop, you know. Uh, because she obviously needed it and was obviously doing something very constructive. She had one, but it was so old. It, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, meeting the, meeting her needs, but I will never ever forget the picture she sent me of herself and this and her little boy opening this box. And this little boy, his face was all swollen, you know, from whatever treatment he was having. And, there was this look of transcendent wonder on his face, and i I never forgot that it was worth a million laptops and and that was another reason that, um it wasn't just for the mothers. I wanted the children to know there are people out here there are actually many of us who who care what happens to you because sometimes when they're in the inner city or whatever they think nobody they think they don't matter, and there's very little to change their mind about that. <laughs> So when they get the idea, because the truth is there are a lot of people out here that uh, obviously you're probably among them who really do care and would help if they knew what to do. And I think it's very valuable to if a child learns early on, especially in those circumstances, well, oh, wow, you know, there are people who would do something like this, you know, and and maybe I do matter. And that probably, if you get to the bottom line, is the whole reason for it. So, I ran on too long, I bet.
1: No, not at all. I'm just, I'm sitting here enthralled. It's just a wonderful story. Thank you so much for coming on the show and um, for for telling us all about this amazing venture. I really hope you can get it out of suspended animation very soon.
3: I'm sure we will. I had a, a lawyer working on it. Great guy. He's doing it pro bono. So. we we should be able to bring it back at some point. We just want the money to actually go to the people and not to the administration. (laughs) Mm,
1: We've been talking with Linda Lail Miller, and you can find her book, Once a Rancher, in stores right now. Linda, thank you so much for taking the time for us. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
3: I hope I get to talk to you again. That was fun.
0: That was fun. I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: Next up, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed talks about changes in ebook sales, so stay tuned. I'm Dookie Hong. And I'm Matt Rodbard. We're the authors of Koreatown, a Cookbook, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: I'm Rose Fox,
0: and I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
1: Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW senior news editor and cool dude Calvin Reed—he told me to put that in there—is here to tell us all about uh Some interesting stuff that's going on with ebook sales. Hi, Calvin. He is the coolest dude
2: yeah, in the is, office. Well, I have to. Apparently, say. he's a bit of a dork too. But anyway, yeah. Well, uh, always glad to be here. Um, yeah. Well, Well, uh, I'm working on a piece now, uh, uh, tentatively headlined "Selling Ebooks in an Evolving Digital Marketplace." Uh, The the piece really came about because, obviously, at the bigger end of the business, we're seeing ebook sales decline after Mm. years of really explosive growth in the ebook sales market.
1: And uh, are these declines in percentage versus per uh, pr- or, or in real numbers?
2: No, these are these are ebook sales declining year over year from the previous Period measured. I mean, I think our editorial director, Jim Miliotts, look at the, the AAP sales figures uh, in March, which look at the end of 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in that last quarter he had ebook sales down like 22% for adults and wow. I think even more wow. for uh, kids in YA. But this is happening sort of across the board, and you know, there's a lot of discussion about it. Uh, it seems to be mostly happening among the bigger, the big five, the yeah. trade book uh, publishers. Now there are a lot of theories going around. Some people say, well, you know, maybe there's a little ebook fatigue among consumers who bought a lot of devices, new phones, uh, loaded up. Which is the tendency of book buyers. You know, you got a lot more books than you can actually read. Sure. Yeah. Uh, that's one theories. Uh, um, as you know, there was a big, in 2012, there was a big ebook price fixing case. Um, basically around, uh, controlling the price of ebooks. Most, most big publishers were uh, unhappy with some stream discounting that was going on at, say, Amazon. And because of the developments out of that case, the ability of publishers now to go back to the agency model. Uh, I'm not gonna go into that whole rigmarole of between wholesale and agency, but you know, that switch is what, uh, prompted the lawsuit, uh, the action by the government, and what we have now is new agreements that, uh, enshrine the agency model, which allows the publishers to more control over the price. And prices have gone up. Uh publishers now uh say that the data is inconclusive about that. Some do anyway. So um what we thought we'd do is to sort of look at what's happening because by all measure the ebook market continues to grow. I, I think one of the uh one of the speakers at Digital Book World just recently talked about how publishers need to look at their marketing strategies. This is the ebook sector continues to grow in many ways because of the self-published authors, which is a massive part of the business now, and yet their share of it seems to be shrinking. So what I did was talk with a bunch of, uh, a small group of independent, mostly digital publishers with very diverging business models and just wanted to get a picture of where what was happening, you know, outside of big New York City Mm -hmm. trade publishing. You know, what I found was that, once again, a market that continues to grow, uh, certainly for these small publishers, some of whom have... Seen some of this uh, softness in the market, but found ways to respond to it. The publisher that I talked to, and they are all over the place, so I'll, I'll try to give a little profile of all of them, uh, a couple of very small startups. Brown Girls Books, which is really an independent publishing e-book publisher started by two actually really well-known African-American authors, uh, female authors, published by Simon and uh, Shuster, Rashonda Tate Billingsley, and uh, Victoria... Christopher Murray. Mm-hmm. Uh, they between the two of them, they published about thirty books, um, bestsellers, African American women's fiction, generally speaking. So they're they're very small. Polis Books actually launched, I think, about two years ago by Jason Pinter, a novelist himself. It's a startup. They started out small. There's also Diversion Books, started by the literary agent uh, mm-hmm. Scott Waxman, that has evolved right. very quickly. And in fact, Diversion Books and Polis Books actually are moving closer and closer to a more traditional model they mm-hmm. started as ebooks only but they have since ramped up uh, very quickly to do print and digital simultaneous release of their front list, but they're also working really aggressively to build backlist. And we also talked with, of course, open road, integrated media, you know, um, which is founded by a uh, former Harper Collins CEO, Jane Friedman, um, that a very mature startup. I mean, they, they're going to publish a thousand books this mm-hmm. year. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, last, but definitely not least start publishing, which is a division of start media, Uh, which is a media content holding firm that actually uh, produces content in a variety of of areas, film, uh, as well as TV, as well as book publishing. And they've been acquiring smaller publishers over the last two or three years. They have about nine imprints and have a backlist of about Mm 7,000 books. Uh, Now, you can go down uh, the list and what you find, uh, what I found in all of these publishers is that they're still growing. Uh they haven't seen declines in their ebook sales except for one brown girls books uh which I wrote about when they launched I believe it was in early twenty fourteen I think they've published twenty four books since then they're publishing uh twenty two this year. They hit a soft spot as um uh Ms Billingstein told me in you know about five or six months after they launched, they got up to speed really fast and were doing well, then they plateaued what they did. As former self-published authors, that's how they started. They went, what she said, they went back to the basics of their publishing program. They put together street teams. They use social media. Now, they all use social media. Sure. But they talk very much about how important it is, um, how digital publishing can be very effective in the African American community. Mm. They were very big on um, having these street teams. They uh, they hand they go to community events. They hand out T-shirts. They try to get word of mouth going about their right. publishing program, and they have since seen an uptick in their sales. And they said early in the year now they're thirty to forty percent. Above what their sales were in the same period last year. They've also grown uh, in other ways. They've added four imprints, among them a children's imprint. They've added a brown girl's face, Christian fiction, uh, a romance line. And they're looking to do kids and teen YA books with an interesting twist. They're written by young people for young people. So Hmm. that's kind of an interesting move. But, But they continue to grow and see sales growth. At Open Road Integrated Media, I mean, very mature startup, um, they have reached kind of a target figure. They offer about 10,000 titles. They really aggressively uh, push lists And in um, what I found to be a pretty candid conversation at their offices, um, uh, Jane said, look, um, the big publishers, as someone who formerly ran a big publisher... Uh, backlist is not what they focus on. Mm. They're frontlist publishers and that gets the bulk of the marketing promotion and attention. And she also suggested that the pricing and, you know, ebooks from the big houses have steadily gone up in pricing since the new agreements went in into effect. She thinks pr- uh, uh pricing has to be taken into consideration. Uh there is price sensitivity out there, particularly in a world of self-publishing where um, really, a lot of people talk about you know the sweet spot for our ebook being somewhere around two ninety nine three ninety nine mm-hmm. the same we could could be said for uh, i 'll put it this way one of the things Jane does at open Road is really look for ways to market backlists. Uh, she uses video, they talk a great deal about milestones, which is finding you know key calendar dates, historical dates, trends that you can use as a platform. To put your books right. in front and help people know more about them, other smaller publishers that are along those same lines, diversion books, uh, now run by a really um, impressive uh, woman, uh, Mary Cummings, uh, really has a hand on. Uh, I had a little short conversation with her, and I think I ended it uh, with her said, "You know, if I had a publishing company, I'd want you running it too." Mm-hmm. Um, and she talked about uh, how they use dynamic. Pricing, which is the really a kind of way of using data right. um, and algorithms to constantly test pricing based on what your customers expect and what your competitors are doing. And she just talked about the whole range of things and what they think about in terms of uh, publishing. Uh, some categories are less resistant to, to price increases, as she mentioned, true crime, which she called the romance category. Of nonfiction, hmm. um, yeah, that
1: makes a lot of sense.
2: She, you know, seven ninety nine on up. She seems says she seems right. to be able to sell as much as she can wow. can sell. On that same true crime tip, Jane Friedman at Open Road mentioned that they launch online communities that promote all kinds of books. For instance, they have a true crime community attracts i think over a million unique visitors a month wow. and they're launching two more communities this year which she, she wouldn't give me the uh, she wouldn't tell me what they were what verticals they're going to be on but there're more coming so it, there's just a wide range of 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 things that people are going about to to try to to get their books in front of people. So,
0: you know, I remember for years we had always, or at least early on, talked about enhanced ebooks. Is that something that actually drives people or, or, or would make someone buy an ebook over something this, else? This continues
2: days? to be the, the head scratching format of the digital publishing environment. Um, enhanced ebooks continue to be produced. But their sales tend to be dismal. Um, The only place you could maybe say the way they've had an impact is in um, children's books, where uh, uh, e-books packed with video or animated stuff or multimedia seems to have got some traction and Mm -hmm. there's some sales. But in the adult business, um, they don't seem, except for some very specific Exceptions, they don't seem to get traction. Right. And they can be very expensive to produce. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that yeah. that two ninety nine three ninety nine spot is interesting because we heard uh, so much about the ninety nine cent ebook back when the the Amazon mm. case was going on. So um, does does it really feel like the market's settled there? That's actually much higher than I would have expected.
2: Well, I think what uh, what I've heard from many publishers, not necessarily from these, but from uh, other publishers, is that setting a price point that allows you space to discount mm. even further. Can be very useful too. One of the things all the publishers talk about are these various daily deals newsletters. Um, I think BookBubs is one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, they, uh, uh, in fact, uh, Open Road Integrated Media has its own uh, email mm-hmm. daily that offers all kinds of special authors. Um, Diversion Books uses them as well. You know, if you're going to price something at ninety nine cents, it's not too. Many, you, you can't do too much. more. There's not a whole lot of flexibility (laughs) with that. Right. Though very often that is a, I think a special price that will pop up even at, you know, you know, formats like, you know, uh, Kindle Unlimited, the the Amazon subscription service in order to uh, get people interested in your books. Yeah.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, um, these op- publishers all sound like they're pretty optimistic. Nobody's saying yeah. eBooks are doomed or it was an no. experiment that failed. No.
2: no, in fact, what you have are, are publishers, uh, um, uh, I will say this, you know, certain publishers like, you know, um, start publishing, um, Jared we- uh, Weisfeld, the, uh, the publisher there, they're very focused on E on eBooks. That's the way to go. It's much less risk. You don't have to fight for shelf space uh, in the print side. On the other hand, you have publishers like Diversion and like Jason uh, Pinter at Polis Books who see print books uh, particularly uh, with the POD side of it, with print on demand, mm-hmm. as kind of a useful component. In fact, uh, I think um, Mary uh, Cummings mentioned that it helps discoverability for your whole list. So, uh, very quickly, I, I think in certain these publishers, print is becoming um, a twin for marketing eBooks, while the backlist very often is is issued primarily as pure ebooks, Right. Hmm. So, um, but they're not straying away from the market. As I said, um, uh, uh, Jason in particular was also saying he saw digital publishing as a meritocracy. Uh, you don't have to come up with big co-op dollars or try to, you know, ha- squeeze some, some self-space in competition with the random houses of the world. You can get your books out and you can get them in front of anything with a savvy digital uh, marketing campaign. So he sees it as a great leveling and, and it allows him to compete in the larger world. So no, digital publishing is alive and well and growing. Mm.
1: Well, that's great. Thank you so much, Calvin. It's always excellent to have you on the show.
2: Always good to be here.
1: Come back and be cool with us anytime.
2: Anytime. <laughs> <You need> <laughs> thank you. Thank you.
1: And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Bridget
3: Hios. I'm the author of It's Getting Hot In Here and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Join us next week for an interview with Benedict Jacka, author of the Alex Verus Urban Fantasy series. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing.
0: In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash PWRadio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode stream live on audiobook